The Rathbones Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood. Hello, I'm Andrea Catherwood and welcome to the latest episode of the Rathbones Look Forward series. I'm talking to some of the great thinkers, journalists and writers of our time, focusing on the future of our changing world. And today we're going to focus on the future of biodiversity with author, travel writer and co-owner of the NEP Wildland Project, Isabella Tree. Her award-winning book, Wilding, tells the story of a wildlife revolution on an English farm and what we can regain if we change our relationship with the countryside. Isabella, welcome. Um, First of all, it was a fascinating story reading your book, not just because of what you achieved, but the way that you you talked us through it. We kind of felt that we lived it with you. So I would like to take you back a little bit to the very beginning to talk about the the project, the farm that you and your your husband, Charlie Burrell, um, have been running. And tell us about the farm that you inherited back then. Well, we inherited it in the 1980s, mm. and it was an intensive arable and dairy farm. So it's it's large by, you know, sort of farm standards in the UK. I guess it's 3,500 acres. We inherited it from Charlie's grandparents. And, you know, we, we fully expected to be farming it intensively for the rest of our lives. Um, and Charlie went... Did to, you know much about farming? Well, Charlie went to agricultural college, yeah. so he, you know, he was sort of trained and, you know, felt, you know, he was... a child of the green revolution I suppose felt he knew the latest technology and basically the problem that w- we inherited was that the farm was losing money hand over fist and we had to find a way to make it work and I think to begin with we assumed that it was all down to Charlie's grandparents you know they they were old they hadn't been investing in infrastructure they didn't know all the amazing latest technology and I think Charlie felt that he did and so for 17 years, we tried to do what every good farmer is supposed to do. You know, we invested in bigger machinery. We tried out different varieties of crops. We um, amalgamated dairies. We even tried to make um, Charlie Burrell's Castle Dairy ice cream. And that was blown out of the water by haagen So everything we tried didn't seem to work. And I suppose about 17 years in, we were more in debt than ever. We were one and a half million pounds in debt. And by 1999, we realised we just couldn't go on. It seems that every day today, we get more and more evidence of the devastating human impact on our planet. But I wonder back then how much you knew about wilding, about soil degradation and about the kind of issues that we feel that are really impacting on farming today. Well, that's really, looking back on it, the shocking thing, I think, because Charlie and I considered ourselves to be quite um, green, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was, you know, in my 20s, I, you know, I was a signed-up member of the Green Party, you know. We used to um, sign petitions to, you know, save the rainforest and stop dams being built and ruin e- ecosystems across the planet. But we didn't really think about what we were doing to our own backyard, I mean, the decision to stop farming was purely economic. Our soil is just not, it's very heavy clay. It's just not meant for intensive farming. You just, you just cannot compete in today's world on our sort of soil. So it's the wrong type of land to be doing arable and dairy. I think if it had been making money, the awful thing is we probably would still be doing it. So we had no idea that we, you know, I think like 
a lot of farmers, we considered ourselves to be stewards of the land. You know, we thought we were doing okay by nature. And it was only when we stopped that we realised what devastation we'd been causing. When you talk about the devastation that was being caused, it's quite interesting how old the idea of intensive agriculture is. It's not just something that happened post-war, is it? Well, I think post-war we added chemicals. Right. So that's a big thing. Um, You know, so all the artificial fertiliser, hugely carbon intensive just to make that fertiliser, let alone do what what it does to the soil, which is basically destroy the soil biota. And then you've got pesticides killing all the the wildlife. You've got um, fungicides destroying the mycorrhizal fungi under the soil. You know, every chemical has a huge impact. But you're absolutely right. This idea of intensive farming, it, 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 it really comes down to the plough. It was the worst invention man has ever come up with. And time and again, these great civilizations across the world have proved that endless ploughing and not looking after your soils, exposing your soils to the the degradating effects of of sunlight, of um, erosion, of of water, of runoff, eventually depletes your soils and civilizations fall. When we look at things that happened just more recently since the Second World War, can you give us just an idea of the scale of what we've lost in terms of meadows and and hedgerows? I think since the Second World War, we've lost 75,000 miles of hedgerows. We've um, lost 97% of our wildflower meadows. Uh, Almost all of our lowland heathland is gone, almost all our lowland wetland. So the countryside we're looking out on today is a completely changed landscape in a matter of 70 or 80 years. And, you know, often I think, you know, that change is is very surreptitious. It happens quite slowly. And so we think, we look out on the picture postcard of our green and pleasant land and think it's been there forever, looking exactly like that. But actually, so much of it has changed in the last 70 years. And I'm interested just in understanding a little bit more about the impact that it has, because we talk about soil degradation um, And I think probably we all understand that good soil health is important. But just in terms of what it actually does to the food we eat, for example, a carrot that's that's grown in in a place that's been really intensively farmed and one that hasn't, what's the difference? Well, I think we're only just beginning to understand the difference and how to measure it. Um, uh, And there's, there's so many different ideas on how to measure nutrients and minerals. We don't even know, you know, half of the trace elements that our bodies need and what our own gut biome requires. But if you can imagine that you're growing a carrot in an intensive system, basically that soil is just dirt. It's just a medium in which to grow grow that carrot. So the only nutrients it's getting are what you add to it, which is basically the artificial fertilizer. It's got none of the sophisticated complexity of, of what your mycorrhizal fungi, those, that lovely web underneath the soil, is pulling in. These tiny fungal filaments can actually mine rock for minerals and then they convert them into chemicals that the, the nutrients that these plants can actually absorb. So a lot of what we put onto our fields aren't very good at being converted into plant-absorbable material. So they're very, very depleted in nutrients, basically, if you're, if you're growing um, crops in depleted soils. And I think that's going to become another big issue that's going to be affecting our health and our huge health bills. So let's take you back to 17 years in. 
running this farm that was losing money, poor soil, and you actually made that decision, a very difficult decision in huge amounts of debt to give up farming. It did give you a headspace to kind of be more open to the ideas that came in. What first made you get interested in biodiversity? How did that all start? It was interesting writing the book because, you know, quite often you don't know when you've had the epiphanies Mm. and um, seeing those moments suddenly made it much clearer that I think one of the the very first moments was when we had um, we've got this wonderful oak tree right next to the house it's probably 500 years old it's way older than the house itself and it is splitting down the middle and during the second world war the Canadian army who were stationed at NEP had pulled it together with tank chains but they were beginning to fail. And so we were told that there was an amazing man called Ted Green who is or was the advisor to the Crown Estates for the wonderful old oaks in Windsor Great Park. And he would know what to do about this tree. So he came and looked at it. And, you know, it was amazing just seeing him looking at this tree through his eyes because he was worshipping it. This was, you know, one of the very few trees that is over 500 years old. And... Uh, but he said, no, this, this tree is in good heart. It'll, it'll last another four or 500 years. We can give it a bit of a prune and do this, that and the other, but it'll be fine. But he turned round and he looked at the oaks that were standing in the ploughed fields around the house. And he said, those trees aren't so good. And these were oaks that probably 300, 400 years old, some of them. But dying back, looking very staggy, you know, when they have those dead branches sticking out of the mm. top, they'd lost that wonderful bloom of kind of broccoli, you know, mm-hmm. that, that a really healthy tree has. And he said, they are really sick. And we said, well, you know, why? Was it the drought? Was it the hurricane in 97? And he said, no, it's what you're doing to the soil underneath it. You're plowing right up to the trunks. You're pouring chemicals on the soil. You're cutting their roots. All their life support systems are being killed by what you're doing. And suddenly to us, we realised it it was down to us that we were losing this whole generation of veteran oaks. Gosh. You also read uh, Franz Vera as well, which was kind of perhaps a light bulb moment as well, was it? Yes, and meeting him Mm -hmm. too. Uh, We went over to Holland to meet him because actually on Ted's suggestion, Mm, he said, you know, we we managed to get some uh, funding, countryside stewardship funding to restore the park around the house. Um, which was a Repton Park. It kind of went with the with the Nash building. But Ted said, I think you could be doing something much more exciting than just having fallow deer grazing around it. We thought it was exciting enough <laughs> as it was. But um, he said, I think you, if you put in some other grazing herbivores, if you put in an, um, some uh, proxies of what would have been here before human impact, something really exciting might happen. And he told us that this was Franz Vera's theory, that... We're missing this idea of all the free-roaming herds of animals that would have been here and how they would have interacted with the vegetation, how they would have broken up woodland, um, disturbed vegetation, their rootling, their trampling. Um, all of that would have kick-started sort of natural processes and opened up niches for other wildlife. So I want to ask you what might sound like a, a basic or stupid question here, but when we talk about wilding and we talk about it more and more these days, what did you actually do? I mean, how much of it is doing absolutely nothing and how much of it is doing something? It's a really interesting point because the I think the idea of rewilding, which is kind of different to uh, conventional conservation, does everything it can to preserve 
a target species or a set of species or a particular habitat. And so, in a sense, it's locking down nature. It's trying to keep the best conditions for those target species. Rewilding is kind of doing the opposite. It's really letting your hands completely off the steering wheel. It's letting nature express itself. You're really just trying to get natural processes to function again, get that dynamism back into the landscape. But if you can imagine what we've done to it over you know, centuries, but particularly in the last 70 years, that land has experienced what scientists would call a, a, a catastrophic shift. It could carry on in a very depleted equilibrium if you just left it to its own devices. So you need something that's going to help kickstart the process and like pulling a glider back up into the sky so it can fly again. And that's really what the large herbivores are proving to be able to do. Um, I think the most obvious one is a beaver. If you think what a keystone species a beaver is and put it into a wetland and suddenly you have standing pools, you have coppice, you have um, just explosions of wildlife. So that's really what the idea was behind introducing these animals. And that's really all we did was just introduce the animals, allow them to free roam the area and just let them get on with it. And the only management we do really is culling the animals so that there's a very small number of them. So you don't have a growing population that is going to outcompete the vegetation. Again, another pretty simple question, but what on earth did your neighbours think? Because <laughs> well, you know, it must have looked so different. And in fact, what everyone was doing there every day was so different from what was happening on other, on other yeah. estates and farms near you. Well, I think it was quite challenging for them. I know it was quite challenging because we had a lot of, um, we had a very large mailbag and quite a lot of letters written to local MP and to the local press. It's sort of understandable, really. I don't think we quite understood the violence of the feeling. But, you know, I think if you're used to looking out on a very managed, controlled landscape and you consider it beautiful and functioning and suddenly your neighbours, us, turn it into a sort of what they would consider a wasteland of docks and ragwort and creeping thistle and thorny scrub. Everything that you as a farmer or a land manager or even a gardener have been doing your utmost to get rid of all your life. All the things we consider weeds. All the things we consider weeds, Mm. exactly. Um, Then you're going to be quite affronted by what happened. But I think it's really a question of aesthetics. It's it's learning that... um, you know, the landscape that we've grown up with or we perhaps we feel nostalgically tied to isn't always functioning as it should. And what we consider beautiful is really um, preconceptions. We're, we're sort of, you know, we, we have a sort of a mindset that is um, connected with it. So it's a lot about letting go. And I think now that we've, uh, our neighbours particularly have had just the experience of living next to this this rewilding project. People who have been walking on footpaths, you know, consistently through all that time are now getting used to a different aesthetic. Mm. We even had a letter of apology last year from a woman who told us in the early days that what we were doing was an abomination and that we'd destroyed something really beautiful. Mm. And she wrote last year and said, I'm, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I, I now realise that what you've done, NEP is still beautiful, but in a very different way. Was there ever a point where you thought, oh, my God, what have we done? Like, this looks like it's not going to work. It, this might be a disaster. I think one of the early lessons for us was, um, well, the big challenges was a moment when we had creeping thistle just came into the Repton Park to begin with. And then it went all across the northern area of the estate and 
tens of acres were covered in creeping thistle. And, you know, that's listed on the Injurious Weeds Act. And, you know, it's a clonal species, so it can just really invade like the day of the triffids. And we lived with it for a year and we thought, well, you know, we've taken this sort of pledge or this ethos we've taken on board is to allow nature to see itself out. We'll leave it. And another year passed and another year (laughs) passed and it just continued to grow. And we really were about to lose our nerve, I think. Um, You know, in the old days as farmers, we'd have been out with the toppers and the herbicide Mm -hmm. as quick as you can say knife. But this time we decided to wait and see. And just when we were beginning to think, you know, gosh, the the letters are becoming too difficult and it's threatening the whole project. We woke up one Sunday morning to painted lady butterflies flying past the window, one a minute. And we couldn't work out what was going on. And we went outside and they were all descending, tens of thousands of painted lady butterflies on the creeping thistle. And they'd flown in. It was one of those particular years where it was a boom year for painted lady butterflies. They'd flown all the way from Morocco and they'd landed on the creeping thistle, which is their food plant for their caterpillars. And they were laying their eggs on this plant. And over that summer, the caterpillars just demolished these acres and acres and acres of the creeping thistle. And the following year, there was nothing left. And so it was our first lesson in the boom and bust cycles of nature and just how a little patience can pay off. Now, about, I think about seven or eight years in, you finally got the government to help fund this project. What effect did you want the, the cows and the ponies and the deers and the pigs to have on the biodiversity? What was the, what was the aim of that? Well, actually, the government did, um, in, the, in the form of countryside stewardship, had, mm. had funded us from the beginning. But there was an area of land that they weren't able to cover for complicated reasons. And it took about seven or eight years to get to entice them into realising, you know, what a fantastic project it was. So um, that was a southern block, um, which had been allowed to sort of rest, really. And um, we didn't really know what to do with it, essentially. And so for eight years, we just allowed scrub to come back after the um, arable fields have been left after their last harvest and ironically it was that hiatus which we at the time were tearing our hair out about that was actually has proved the most interesting for the habitat so what we've what's happened there is that the allowing a vegetation pulse to happen allowing your brambles your hawthorn your blackthorn your crab apple all that to come up um and then releasing these free-roaming animals into it. You've got a very equal battle between the vegetation coming up and then the animal disturbance, the browsing and the grazing and the trampling and rootling. And that's when you get this sort of the messy margins, the kind of dynamic kaleidoscope of habitats all pushing into each other. So you've got open areas where the cattle graze, which are like open lawns. You've got stands of sallow, you've got thick thorny scrub which are made even thicker by the browsing, Um, you've got wetlands, you've got boggy bits and all of them clash together and keep moving. Mm. So that's really what the animals are doing and the more species of big herbivore you can get out there, the more vegetation complexity and dynamism you have because they all have different behaviours and different ways of eating and, and they all affect the vegetation in a completely different way. And of course, as well as the animals that you've introduced or reintroduced, you've actually got animals that have arrived there that you weren't anticipating. Yeah, I mean, apart from the free-roaming animals, Mm. that's all we've introduced. 
uh, we're about to introduce beavers, which is so exciting. I can hardly even think about it. But um, uh, so we've got the free roaming herbivores coming in, and then because they create this very dynamic habitat, everything else has found us. So we've so now tell me, tell me what kind of insects and animals have arrived I mean, that you weren't that anticipating. We we couldn't have even believed possible. We at the beginning we hoped that we if we could just increase biodiversity by just a fraction, that would have been an experiment worth trying. But now we have turtle doves, which are, according to the RSPB, they're the most likely bird to go extinct from Britain in the next 10 years or so. We've got them breeding on net. We're probably the only place in Britain where turtle dove numbers are actually rising. We're one of the biggest breeding hotspots for nightingales, again, another bird that's critically in decline. Um, Purple emperor butterflies, again, very, very rare butterfly. We're by far the biggest breeding hotspot for them. Um, peregrine falcons we've got them nesting in a tree which is almost unheard of I mean I could go on for ages about just the rare species but more than that it's the, it's just the biomass it's the sheer volume of life so if you go out on a spring morning um, you can stand in the middle of that thorny scrub and the sound of birds is so loud that you can actually feel it reverberating in your lungs and your stomach Everything that you have told us about NEP sounds absolutely wonderful. It sounds like it's such a successful project today. And yet I'm sure there'll be people thinking, well, that's lovely, but how do you, how can we feed people on this model? How can farmers make money on this model? How do those two things marry? Well, it's a hugely important question, obviously. We're always, I think, going to need land to grow food on. You know, there's there's wonderful technologies coming online, the Impossible Burger and fermentation and all these sort of things. They're untried and they're untested, and we don't know about them nutritionally. And also, I think there's still a question mark about whether they're carbon neutral, let alone if they are actually a carbon sink. And that's hugely important, I think, for any technology that we're looking to in the future to provide our food. Really, the soil is the best medium, the best solution for growing food. It's It's what it's always done. But on areas like NEP, on marginal land that is not suitable for growing intensively, we can do, I think, rewilding projects that actually work in tandem with intensive agriculture. There's one thing that we never, I think, acknowledge fully enough is that we're already producing enough food for 11 billion people and we're 7.5 billion now. We waste 40% of it. So we have to address that problem first. But in the areas where we're going to continue doing intensive agriculture, we have to move away from ploughing and chemical dependence because we have only got whatever it is, some say 100 years left of harvest across the planet before we have no topsoil in which to grow anything. How do we begin then to transform the countryside that I know you've described in your book as a a biological desert? Um, Because as you say, we need to use it. We need to use it to grow the foods that we need to eat. How do we begin that transformation in the UK? Well, I think we we need to move away from this chemical ploughing conventional system of farming into regenerative agriculture. We're already seeing amazing pioneers like Gabe Brown, a North Dakota farmer in um, America, who is now in the top 15% of producers in North Dakota. And he is doing that now with no inputs whatsoever. And he is not having to irrigate in the summer and all his neighbours have to. In the winter, his soils are six degrees warmer um, because his soils are now functioning, they're alive. So that means he's doubled his growing season. So he's not only producing more, he's producing organic, nutritious food 
for less money and he's actually making profits. So we have to shift our whole idea about how we farm into a regenerative agriculture. And then in the areas that don't work for farming, we can rewild like we have at NEP. So you're now having areas that are um, hot spots for biodiversity, but they're also doing all the other things that we desperately need, like water storage, water purification, purifying our air. We know at NEP that we're sequestering carbon in the soils now that they're functioning again. We're mitigating against floods downstream. So you can use rewilding strategically where you need these, you know, water management, for example. And then between these areas, you need to add wildlife corridors. So connecting all our nature reserves, our rewilding hotspots together with functioning wildlife corridors so that you have the ability for these species to thread through the landscape again. And that means through our arable and and intensive farm landscapes too. When you sit here telling me your wonderful story, it seems really obvious Um, and you're very passionate about it. But I wonder, how do we actually make a change? Does the government need to try and incentivise farmers? I mean, presumably you come across farmers who who don't agree with what you're saying and don't think that that your views are the way forward. I mean, I'm just trying to work out what the challenges are to what you say. I think it's I think in the last couple of years, there is has been a real shift in 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 attitude. And I think that's on the part of the government um, uh, as well as on the part of farmers and the general public. I think we are all beginning to pull in the same direction, which is really exciting. We've we've just become part of a a farm cluster, which is 31 neighbouring farms have joined together with the Upper Ada farm group. And I think five years ago, that would never have happened. The farmers who've joined this group are all looking at ways in which they can improve their farms for nature. They're not going to rewild, or at least not yet, maybe one or two may further down the line, but they'll be looking at ways, I think, in, in of how to increase biodiversity on their own farms, how to connect with neighbours, how to create these wildlife corridors, these um, river links, um, how to use their wetlands better. And I think that the government has begun as well to push for that. So I think for the first time, we're going to see a system where farmers are going to be paid not just for producing food, irrespective of the damage it's doing to the soil, but um, taking into account if they are restoring soils, um, purifying water, holding on to water, doing, um, you know, sequestering carbon, um, doing their best for biodiversity. You'll be paid for that now and recognised for what you do, as well as being penalised properly for pollution. Many people might think, well, look, can, can we can we feed ourselves doing it like this? You've already said to, that a lot of food is wasted, and I'd like to just touch on that a little bit more. Can you give us an idea of the scale of the food that's wasted and 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 why? You know, why are we making food that we don't eat that we throw away? Again, I think this is um, something that the food and farming industry just—it's—it's um, it's a taboo. We haven't been allowed to address it because it's obviously in in the interests of the the, the sort of the, the big business to continue producing more and more and more food. Um, but this has really happened since the Second World War. Um, I, I think it was a criminal offence, if I'm right in saying, and um, you know, in the days of rationing, to waste food. Mm. It should be a criminal offence again. We are incentivised, or have been, 
um, for producing more and more and more grain, irrespective of whether we need it. And grain in particular, I think we're producing way more than we could possibly ever actually use, consume ourselves as human beings. So what happens then in the 1960s and 70s is we start being um, compelled to feed it to animals and start the intensive systems. And still we're overproducing food, so we're starting to to feed it to our cars and our industrial systems in, in the form of biofuel, which again to me seems completely wrong. So I think we have to address those big-scale issues, but also just the issues of overselling of supermarkets, the two-for-one mm-hmm. sales of us throwing away things before their sell-by, you know, by their sell-by date when they're still perfectly edible, the the huge um, portions we get in restaurants that just get scraped off the plates and are no longer fed to pigs because we're not allowed to do that in our system anymore. So there's so many ways I think that we can address this. It's a question of joining up the thinking. Now, I know one argument uh, against rewilding is that you can't reintroduce a species to an area and assume that it's going to act in the way that it did before because the balance of the species won't be the same as it was and it might, in fact, have negative consequences. What, what do you say to that and how have you dealt with it? Well, I think the important thing, and this is one of the reasons I call my book Wilding and not Rewilding, mm. is that... It's not about trying to recapture um, the past or an ecosystem that functioned in the past. We can't do that, and we certainly can't go back to some Eden before human impact. What we can do, though, is use our understanding of how those systems functioned before us to inform what we do and our choices for future conservation. So when we look at rewilding, I think it's important to think of it in terms of novel ecosystems. What you're trying to do is just get systems to function again, for dynamic processes to happen, for nature to be able to perform. And so it may be totally different to a landscape or or an environment that has ever been before. In fact, every ecosystem is always new because it's always evolving. I think one of the paranoias we have is about about introducing species is this idea of invasive or alien species Mm. but when you actually look at it and you drill down into the benefits and disadvantages I was talking to an amazing one of our greatest botanists uh, um, Mick Crawley at um, Imperial College the other day and he said he doesn't think there's a single plant that he would worry about in Britain perhaps apart from um, Rhododendron ponticum in, in Scotland All the others settle down after a decade or so. They start, that obvious pioneering moment passes and they become part of the ecosystem again. And some of them have huge benefits like Himalayan balsam, which is fantastic late flower. It's fantastic for pollinating insects. I think if we're going to improve biodiversity for the future, we have to be generous and allow these species to arrive and work with them. And I think what we've noticed at NEP is that the more fully functioning your ecosystem is, the more complete it is, the harder it is for invasive species to come in. About um, a couple of years ago, we had ring-necked parakeets, a flock of them, arrive. And we thought, okay, this is the new look. Um, I think they hung around for about two weeks and disappeared, and they've never been back. And I think that's because now we have so many um, predators up in the skies. We have red kites, we have um, peregrine falcons, we have five, all five species of owl. There's, there's no room for them 
to to find a, a foothold to get a toe in the in door. the way that they have in London, for example, in the way that they have in London, mm-hmm. in in very depleted landscapes mm-hmm. in our parks, exactly. I know you're really excited about the idea of bringing in beavers. Tell me about what that's going to do or what you're hoping that it will do, what ways it will change NEP. I think more than any other, the beaver is a keystone species that um, it, it's, it's a hydrological engineer. It's, it's absolutely ingenious and tireless. I mean, actually, you know, it must be one of the most stressful existences, <laughs> I think, a beaver, because it never stops. It wants to build dams, and if it feels that there's a leaky dam, then it's always endlessly repairing it. But basically, it's uh, it, the, the system that it's evolved is um, it will, from a very muddy, small stream, and they've proved this down in Devon, um, uh, the, the Devon Wildlife Trust, in conjunction with um, Exeter University, have done a, a, a sort of trial beaver release site, which has shown that this dirty stream that was heavy with nitrates and runoff from surrounding farmland has been transformed in a tiny area I think it's a three hectare I may be wrong it's but it's small um, enclosure these beavers one family of beavers have created clean water pools numerous standing clean water pools and now biodiversity has just rocketed. So you have kingfishers, you have herons, you have the, the Devon Culm grassland, which is in itself a habitat that's very threatened, has come back into that small enclosure because of what the beavers are doing. And of course, they're holding back the water in times of flood. And then in times of drought, they're releasing it very, very slowly. So it, it works for the ecosystems even further downstream that aren't directly affected by them. And what do you think about reintroducing larger predators I'm thinking for example of lynx being reintroduced to the UK that's slightly more controversial isn't it I think the lynx would be a very good candidate for introduction I think um, you know we may be some time off considering the wolf Um, although having said that you know uh, Germany has 60 um, uh, wolf packs now gone from one in 2001 so we can live with these creatures again but I think um, the lynx will be a much easier predator to live with in Britain because it's a stealth predator, so it could only really be released into areas of um, closed woodland, and it has to have huge areas of woodland. It's not going to threaten your cat or your dog. It's very shy. It would stay very clear of human beings, but it would predate on roe deer. That's its main species, and we have millions of roe deer now. I think we have over 2 million deer in the UK at the moment. And so they have, row have a huge impact on the understory and woodland and on habitat, particularly for nesting birds. So a lynx would be a very useful way of bringing down the row, row deer population. We probably wouldn't even know it was there, but just the thrill of knowing it is would be amazing. You speak very interestingly in the book um, about the psychological impact of NEP's healthy ecosystem on you. Tell me a little bit about that and and what the impact has been for you. I think when we started, we were thinking, you know, about what it would do for wildlife. We Mm. weren't really thinking about what it would do for us. Um, But that really has been the most surprising thing, I think. It's, It's just learning how to let go. I think that changes your mindset completely. It, it, it makes you, I think, much calmer, more grounded. It makes you be able to take the knocks more easily, perhaps. But I think above all, it's just that feeling that 
nature can rebound even in somewhere as depleted as our landscape was 20 years ago and in a very short space of time. And when we walk out now on a summer's evening and you can hear that turtle dove, you know, in in the thickets crooning at you, I think it it's just that inexpressible sort of feeling of joy you get from hearing something that is so rare and yet thriving in your own backyard. And really that feeling of kind of completeness that this is this is life as it's meant to be. This is this is how nature should be. And I think that's what so many people visiting net come away with is that new sense of sound and feeling that we're missing in the landscape it's a double-edged sword of course because then you go into the rest of you know parts of the countryside that perhaps you've loved before and you realize what isn't there we've been talking about very large-scale changes and many of us just don't have the ability to make that kind of impact but a lot more people are thinking these days about how they can do this in, in a small way. I wonder what you would suggest to people who are just thinking about something in, in their garden, perhaps, or, you know, a small hedgerow somewhere. Just is it is it worth trying to make a little impact? Absolutely. And I think we all can make a difference. Um, you know, there's there's um, a million acres of gardens out there in Britain. Imagine if they all went chemical free and started farming for wildlife rather than trying to eradicate wildlife in those gardens it would be a huge impact you know there's more gardens than there are nature reserves so it's it's a massive potential um i think one of the things apart from gardening organically and again being very careful where your plants come from because a lot of the plants even the the bee friendly plants that you buy in garden nurseries have been drenched in pesticides when they've been while they've been cultivated. So, just, so you have just to be very tell us careful. That. What should we look out for then? Is there something... Is I think grow your own mm. if you can. Um, that, is the, that is the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the other thing that is so interesting from the rewilding point of view is connectivity. And so if you can connect your garden with someone else's, even if it's just by cutting a, a hedgehog hole in your garden fence. Um, I have a friend who's done this in his back garden and connected with the whole street of back gardens so there's now basically it's now a hedgehog wildlife corridor and one person in his street has a beetle bank another has a sand pit another has uh, a pond so stretched across that street are all those different habitats and if you can connect that street with a park an, an urban park or an embankment or a towpath you can actually connect the inner city with the outside countryside and I think we also have to look at rewilding our green belts. Our green belts are, are green only in name. Um, our brownfield sites are greener than our green belt. And really those were intended, the green belt, as buffers for people living in cities, as a healthy place to visit and the lungs for the city. And they're not operating like that. So we can get them working like that if we can rewild more of it. And our lawns the biggest problem I think lawns are a huge problem (laughs) and uh, but you know I'm just beginning to look at our lawn and I thought we were quite green with our lawn but actually there's so much more you can do and relax about it and not be out there mowing all the time Um, I think one of the the problems is kind of peer pressure and I think if you're in a street and the neighbors are looking over your garden and your lawn is unkempt and there's a lot of pressure but there's a new venture, I think an enterprise uh, called the Blue Heart Scheme, 
where you can put a blue heart on a, on a post in your rewilded garden, which is basically advertising, I know what I'm doing. I'm not being lazy, irresponsible. This is what I'm doing for the planet. And hopefully that will begin to persuade neighbours that there's, you know, there's method in, what, in, in this system and perhaps put peer pressure the other way. Isabella, thank you so much indeed for discussing that with us. It was really fascinating and, uh, and wonderful to hear what a huge success you've made of it. My pleasure. Thank you. The Rathbones Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.